Happiness is the consequence of personal effort. You fight for it, strive for it, insist upon it, and sometimes even travel around the world looking for it. You must make a mighty effort to keep swimming upward into that happiness forever, to stay afloat on top of it. Elizabeth Gilbert, from her book, from her best-selling book, Eat, Pray, and Love, The most important thing is to enjoy your life, to be happy. It's all that matters. Audrey Hepburn, college students, you can ask the older generation who that is. The purpose of our lives is to be happy. The Dalai Lama. Or my favorite philosopher that I'll quote this morning. Happiness is a choice. Join team happy and get off team hater. Kim Kardashian, older generation, asked the college students. What is life about? These are just a sampling of what our culture is telling us. What's interesting is they're kind of telling us the same thing. The goal of life is personal happiness now on your terms. As long as you're happy... How, long have, how, how often have we heard that advice? What should I do? As long as you're happy. How, how often have we given that advice? But I think what has happened is the secular world is telling us something, if you're a believer here today, it's telling us something about life, that the goal of life is to just be happy now. And what we have done in the church is we've taken that and we've taken our cues from the world, and we've kind of imported that into Christianity. So, yes, of course, we're, if you're a believer here, you believe in God, but you have, and perhaps you have, and I think, by and large, American Christianity has subtly tweaked God. God, now, yes, He exists, but He exists for my personal happiness now. But, if the old confessions are right... The old confessions which taught sometimes in really short, handy ways how to summarize what the Bible taught. And if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, which means to glorify God and enjoy Him on His terms, then that seems to butt heads with how we've modified Christianity at times. Perhaps God has become... Yes, a means, but he has become the means to some other end other than himself for you. So God is the means to comfort. God is the means to the American dream. God is the means to my best life now. And you better give it to me. I think one of the symptoms of this repackaged version of Christianity is it doesn't handle suffering very well. After all, if we think God exists... For my sake, if God exists and thinks I'm awesome and He wants me to be happy, happy, healthy, and rich, successful, with little to no pain, well then, what do we do when life doesn't really work out that way? Which, of course, it doesn't. We get sick. We get in car accidents. We have heart attacks. And we die. And that's for the lucky ones. 
See, because for some of us, we all know death's coming, but for some of us, our kids die before we do. For some of us, we find out four months in that our kids have fluid on their brain, as one of my good friends found out this week. Sometimes our kids die. Sometimes our spouses die. And the question is, how does your worldview handle that? That's the real world. That's the one that we all have to live in. No matter if you're here and you're religious or you're irreligious, it it really doesn't matter. We're all living in this world. We all have to still deal with the same reality. But let's back up just for a second and explore some of the trappings of a secular worldview. Because I think, as I've mentioned before, what's actually going on is we Christians are subtly adopting certain things from the world and we're calling it Christianity. So let's back up and see the secular worldview and, and how it deals with suffering. A purely secular worldview says there is no God, so there is nothing higher than self. Therefore, hence, you live for self. Do whatever makes you happy. And so in light of that, it has three responses. The secular worldview has at least three. I'm sure more responses though are, are out there. But three quick ones we're going to mention this morning. Suffering is meaningless. So we're to end suffering as much as possible. And if you can't avoid it altogether, which of course no one can, then you just avoid it as much as possible. The goal of life is to avoid pain, avoid suffering. Now, of course, if you're a believer here, you should resonate with some of this. I mean, if you are trying to find suffering, if you're trying to get into a situation where there's more pain, something's sick and a matter with you. Stop doing that. Yes, there's, we should try to alleviate suffering in the world. If we love our neighbor, we will do that as Christians. But, as even most seculars will admit it's inevitable that we will deal with the world and we can't simply avoid it at all costs. So number two, the secular, the secular worldview will say, therefore, learn to cope. you just got to learn to cope. you got to suck it up. This is the only world you have, so learn coping strategies. Go live for yourself. Find the good life. And if you can't find the good life, if that's not working, then drink to cope, work to cope. Medicate yourself to cope. Just stay busy to cope. But this world is all you have, so just deal with it. But what I find is when I talk to people with this worldview, it doesn't actually work. See, because when, when their child dies or when they get sick or their spouse gets sick or there's a tragedy and they're faced with suffering and there's nowhere to run, there's no way they can avoid it, they have nowhere to turn. And coming in with their worldview and say, suck it up, isn't helpful. It just doesn't cut it. This worldview offers you nothing. Yes, it encourages you to go live for yourself, but then when suffering comes, it leaves you there beside the graveside with no hope. Number three, I think the most consistent response from from a secular worldview is simply to marvel at suffering. In 1883, there was a natural disaster that killed 200,000 people. And the atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche wrote to a friend and said, 
200,000 wiped out at a stroke. How magnificent. Now you've got to give the man one thing. He was consistent. He denied the existence of God, so there were no absolute value judgment. There was no inherent meaning in life and value in an individual. So he simply stood back and looked at the suffering and death of hundreds of thousands and said, how marvelous. Look at the sheer power of nature. But, let's be honest, most secular folks I talk to, they can't respond like that. They simply can't. They simply will not. Intuitively, they know that there's something to human life. There's value there. We could say more, but I think, especially in a crowd like this, you're probably ready to move on. You've come to church and because you're looking for something more or perhaps you've already found it. So let me ask you a few questions before we dive into the book of Job if you want to be turning there in your Bible. Why do you serve God? If you're here, many of you believe in God. Many of you are trying to serve God. Why do you serve Him? What if God allowed everything to be taken from you? Everything you in this world that you loved, your family, your money, your health. If he allowed that, would you still serve him? Would you still worship him? Welcome to the book of Job. Job 1.1 There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Right off the bat, we learn two things about Job. Number one, he was rich. Job was rich. You know, it's not impressive to us that he had 500 female donkeys. Most of you were not impressed by that. That was impressive in that culture. That represented a lot of wealth. So he was rich. He's also, we also learn right off the bat that he's righteous. He was a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. So keep those things. Those are important. By the way, we're going, you know, sometimes you walk through Scripture. We're running through Scripture, okay? We're running today, and we're going to get to the end of Job. Uh, and so we're going to be skipping along. I want you to see the big picture of Job and how it fits together. Look at verse 6. Now there was a day when when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God tells Satan what we have already seen. Satan, that, that he, he tells Satan that Job is a righteous man. More, more than that, he is the most righteous man on all the earth. But Satan responds. Look at verses 9-11. through 11. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. In other words, Satan says to God, Job doesn't really love you, God. He loves your stuff. 
Job loves your stuff. He loves the stuff you give him. He loves the hedge of protection. You've given him a good life. You take away that stuff, he won't love you. Job serves you because he loves the gifts, but he doesn't love the giver. Verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. What you see in the verses that follow is you see Satan use natural disasters. You see him use war parties to wipe out Job's wealth, to kill his servants, to kill his children. Disaster. Tragedy. And then verse 20, we see Job's response. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now what you don't see here is you don't see Job saying, be calm, carry on. He, he doesn't say, I haven't really loved this stuff. I didn't really love my kids. I didn't, I didn't really love my wealth. I didn't love that stuff, so it doesn't really matter. In some Eastern religions, the way they deal with suffering is they say, don't get attached to this world. Don't get attached to people. You've got to kind of separate yourself from them. And because there's a good chance that things will be taken away. And so to avoid the pain and the loss and the, the grief, just don't get too attached. Of course, this isn't the biblical answer. This isn't the Christian answer. The Bible teaches that God created us to love. Yes, love Him first, above all things, but to love others. To be thankful for His gifts. Yeah, so, so it's right for us to love stuff, as long as we love it in the right order, under God. It's right for us to love people. God has commanded us to do that. And so that means it is right for us to mourn people. To mourn the loss of things. That is right and that is good. There's something wrong if you don't because it means you're not loving them. Nicholas Wolterstorff says this. His son died in a, in a mountain climbing accident in his 20s. He says this. The Stoics of antiquity said, Be calm, disengage yourself, neither laugh nor weep. Jesus says, Be open to the wounds of the world. Mourn humanity's mourning. Weep over humanity's mourning. Be wounded by humanity's wounds. Be in agony over humanity's agony. But do so in good cheer that a day of peace is coming. And Job here weeps and he mourns, but he also worships. Now, we as readers know, we, we get the behind the scenes of Job. Job doesn't know what happened with Satan and God we are, we are privy to this discussion. And from this and from what we see here, we learn several truths about God and about suffering and evil in the world. I'm going to give you three just very quickly. Number one, God is ultimately in control. Job is able to correctly, according to verse 22, say that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Now, one time I cited this in a, in a prayer. I was praying. It wasn't planned. It just kind of came to me. And a gentleman in my church met me on the way out and said, How dare you? Very mad. And I had no idea what he was talking about. 
I'd preach a sermon afterwards. I didn't know. And so I was like, what? I'm sorry, what did I do? And How could you pray that prayer? And I said, sir, I was quoting from Job. And he said, well, Job was wrong. Job was wrong. The man, Job, he, he wasn't right. And I said, let's look at, look, at the, look at this. Let's open it up. Verse 22. The narrator adds in to make sure we don't miss it. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. God's ultimately in control. God is not the author or doer of evil. What we see here is Satan is the one who carries these evil things out. So it's not this. God is the one who is doing evil things. He doesn't create evil. He never created evil. He is only good. God is ultimately in control. God is not the author or doer of evil. But, number three, God does allow evil to exist in the world. Satan can only do what he is allowed to do by God. He has to come here and ask God's permission to do these things to Job. He carries them out, but God, and certainly any picture of God, you have to say, God could stop things if he wanted to. He could stop the natural disaster. He could stop the murder if he wanted to. And if you don't say that, then you no longer have God. But what we see here is through, through all this suffering, Job still worships God. But then what happens is the story shifts back to behind the scenes where, where Satan comes back and says, Job still has his health. And so, and so God says, okay, touch his health. And so God allows Satan to attack Job's health. And we see him in this scene in chapter 2, and he's, he's, he's there, and his, his body is just, is just torn up. It's just messed up. And then in verse 8, we see this, chapter 2, verse 8. He, he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. My bro- when my brother, and many of you know, I mentioned it this morning, my brother's going through, uh, waiting to get his liver, and he was in bad shape, and we were talking about Job too. And he said, still with a sense of humor, he said, You know, that's Job 2... Verse 9 is Job's wife's only line in this entire 42-chapter book. It's it's our only line. Look what it is. Curse God and die. Apparently, she did not have the gift of encouragement. Ladies, don't model your life after Job's wife, please. Verse 10, look. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And again, the narrator, which is God, by the way, steps in and says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. If we missed it the first time, God wants us to understand, Job is not in sin for mourning. He's not saying, come on, Job, put your happy face on for God. Things aren't that bad. No, that's not the point. Job has, the author has no problem with Job mourning for loss. And God also wants to understand that Job did not sin by saying that God is ultimately sovereign over evil. He wants us to get it. We also see from this response to his wife that Job had thought deeply about suffering. And we see this again if you just skip ahead to verse, chapter 3, verse 25. Job is speaking and he says this, for the things that I fear comes, the thing that I fear comes upon me. 
and what dread befalls me? He's saying, I feared this. He had thought about this. He, he said, all this could be taken away. I know that. Job is a man here who has, hasn't waited till suffering to hit, to think through suffering. This is a man who has pondered suffering before. And that is a lesson for us all as the church. Our job isn't to wait, wait until something hits us and then think, what should we do? How, how can we work this out? But it's now for you who aren't suffering, who aren't in pain. Now is the time to wrestle with pain and suffering because it's coming. It's coming. And then what you have through much of the rest of the book is you have, and one reason that Job is never preached is you have this back and forth, back and forth between Job and his friends. And here's the thing about his friends. Job's friends, well, he's got some pretty rotten friends. They didn't mean to be rotten. They're not setting out to be bad friends. But here's why they were bad friends. They had bad theology. So you might love somebody. You might care for them. If you've got messed up theology, you're not going to know what to say. You're not going to know how to serve them. You're not going to know how to love them. Yeah, it really does affect things. So this is, this is Job's friends, their theology, their basic theology wrapped up in a few sentences. They held to what's called the strict retribution principle. Now, I used to think this way when I was little. When I was, we were living in, down in Lake Park, and we had this brick kind of fireplace thing. And we would, I would play Nerf soccer, sometimes by myself. Sometimes with my brother. If I was by myself, of course, I had to imagine. But, um, and I would, I can remember this. I, this has stuck out through all these years. But I can remember there was a time where I was swinging to hit the Nerf soccer ball. And I missed and I hit the brick fireplace and I broke my toe. And I was out soccer for a few weeks. Just silly. And I can remember thinking, okay, God, what did I do? Like I was trying to line it up. You know, maybe I shouldn't have told that. I was trying to line it up one-on-one correspondence. In other words, I broke my toe. I must have done something to cause that. And that's the theology, and it's bad theology, that Job's friends had. They said, listen, Job, we know you don't think so, and we know you appear righteous. We know you appear that way, but you must have some hidden sin, man. Come on, just cough it up. Just let us know. Just repent, and it'll be better. But Job, throughout the book, he wants to maintain his integrity. He said, guys, well, let's look and see what Job says. Look at chapter 23. This is one of those back and forth moments. And I'm going to be flying uh, on time here. Verse chapter 23, then Job answered and said, so he's responding to his friends who had this theology Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat, God. He's talking about God. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Job knows that he hasn't done anything worse than his friends. He's not saying he's perfect. That's not the point. He's saying, relatively speaking, compared to his friends, he he was a good man. In fact, we know from the beginning that he was a righteous man. And so now Job is saying he would lay out his case before God. Now is where it gets a little, there's some tension here with what Job's doing. 
He's saying he would lay out his case before God and he would argue it out with God and God would vindicate him. And then what happens through the book of Job is it's this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and we get to the end and surprisingly God shows up. But he doesn't respond in the way Job was expecting him to respond. Skip ahead to chapter 38. Then, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and, and you will make it known to me. Remember, this is, this is God's grace in coming and speaking to Job. Yes, there is some, there's this rebuke here to Job. But there's also grace and mercy that God has come and spoken to him and has revealed himself to Job. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what, or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God sh- shouted for joy? He goes on like this for four chapters. Through to chapter 42. God answers Job by not answering Job. It's what I like to call the best non-answer in the Bible. This is how he responds. He says, where were you when I made the world? What knowledge do you have of my mind? Can you do what I have done? Of course, the answer for Job was, no, I'm not you. I don't have your mind. Notice what God doesn't do. God doesn't come to Job to, and he says, listen, Job, let me explain all of the whys. Let, let, let me explain all the whys of suffering, why this happened and why this happened. That's not the answer. That's not what he gives at least. Look again, look again a, a few chapters ahead in chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken twice, and I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no further. In other words, Job says, God, you are God and I am not. See, what we as humans want is, at least what we think we want, is we want what we talked about in the Sunday school hour of you here. We want that God's eye view. We want to be able to set all the reasons why all of this happened. We want to know it all. But here's the thing. Believing in God, believing in the God of the Bible, means believing in a God who is infinitely wiser and whose ways are beyond our understanding. So if you reject God simply because you can't understand why this happened or that happened you are actually rejecting a make-believe God because the real God says there will be many times where you're like Job and you're sitting there saying, I don't have a clue. I don't know. 
Look at what Job comes back after God has revealed himself. So he has this moment, this experience with God, and then Job comes back in chapter 42. And we're closing in here on the end. He comes back, and we see, we see Job answers God. Verse Chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Now that last, that, that's actually a quote. Verse 3 is actually repeating the question the Lord has asked him in chapter 38. So Job is saying what God said, and now Job's going to respond to this. He says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Again, he's quoting this, and then Job responds. And he responds, look at 5 and 6 very carefully. We see Job responds as a changed man. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So here's a man who hasn't gotten all the answers He had certain things he wanted to explain to him, and he didn't get them. But he has understood that God's reasons are often above his ability to understand. But we also see a man here who has grown in his relationship to God. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain." I've seen this over and over and over within the church. Someone goes through suffering. Yes, that can drive people away, but it can also drive people so much closer to God. Job has had everything taken away, but he bows the knee to God. He hasn't understood all the whys, but God has used the suffering to change Job. So he comes out of this, and we see this here. He comes out of this thinking less of self and more of God. So I ask you the question I opened with, why do you serve God? Why are you here this morning? Obligation? To play the game? Do you, do you serve Him? Do you do the stuff you do so that you get stuff so that he keeps up his end of the bargain and keeps you safe and comfortable. He blesses you materially. Or do you simply serve God because he is God? And he's not only God, but you find your delight in pleasing and serving him. The way we can tell how we respond to that is oftentimes how we deal with suffering. See, we, we, we glorify God in our suffering when we follow the path of Job. That is, when we say, God, I really love the answers, and I'm mourning, and I'm hurting, and I'm weeping, and I know that's okay with you. But I also know that, that, that you're not on the hook for anything. I, I don't, you don't owe me answers. I would love them, but I know you don't owe me that. And you know what, God? You're enough. You're enough. You know, God, I wish that... I wish that my four-month-old wouldn't have this on her brain. I wish that. God, I wish you wouldn't allow my daughter or my son to die. I wish you wouldn't have, but God, you're enough. As Christians, we're in even better shape than Job to say that. This is why. Job has certainly some special revelations, some things we don't get to see. But we are in a better position to see God's faithfulness than Job. 
illustration, and then my point, and then I'll close. Our two-month-old, well, he's seven months old now, but when you have, as all of you know, you have babies, you have to take them to get shots. And one of the conversations we have at the house, me and Tracy, my wife, is that who has to take him to get the shots? Because no one wants to. It's like the worst time. You have to take your little baby and they stick giant needles in your little baby. And you take them there, and I think it's a bit of a, you know, I, I've, I like to put myself in my son Hudson, his, his shoes. He just wears socks. But I, I like to put myself in his place because, you know, you take them there, and it's, you know, especially when it's Tracy because he loves his mom. And Tracy has him, and she's smiling, and she's pretty, and she takes him in. And then these, you know, the pediatric, it's all like clown. Well, clowns can scare people, I know. But he takes them in there, and it's, it's things that kids like. And colorful, and then pretty nurse, colorful. And then they're all smiling, and he's like, this is great. You know, I can imagine he's thinking. And then they take out the shots. And I, I know they don't process like this, I know. But, but you could imagine if you were there, and you're like, no, surely not. Surely not. <laughs> you're not, no, no. You're, look, my mom's right there. He, she's not going to let you. And then she comes over, and boom, boom, boom. See, my son, though. He doesn't have the categories to get that. But see, if my son was old enough to think it through, the one thing he couldn't say is, you know what, my, my mom doesn't care about me. She doesn't love me. She can't say that. He, She's got this track record. He knows. Even at seven months, I'm sure he knows. But what about us as Christians? How do we know? How do we know that this God can be trusted? We know by picking up our head, or perhaps putting it down in the pages of Scripture, and then looking to the cross. See, no matter the trial, no matter the pain, no matter the suffering, no matter the evil, when we look to the cross, what we see is a God who has entered into this world. He has entered into this world to pay for our sins and to suffer with us. He has entered in this world with a promise that one day He will make this world right. So we don't understand it all. And you know what? That's okay. Neither does my son. But what my kids need, what your kids need, is they know that they can trust their parents. What we need, what you need, is to be able to know that you can trust this God. And when you look to the cross and you see God in flesh who has entered into this world, this is, the, this is distinct from any other religion. If you're here saying they're all basically the same, this is really the only one that says this, God entered into the world, died on the cross for our sins, rose on the third day. When you see that, you say, God, I don't get it, but I can trust you. The book closes with Job getting his stuff back. Not the stuff he had, but new stuff. And he, he, he gets new kids, not the, not the kids, they weren't resurrected, but he gets kids, he has a family again, and there's this positive note, and critics of the Bible say, that's just a horrible way to end, they liked it all the way till the end, and then, God, and then Job gets his stuff back, and they're saying, what's going on? And there's many things I don't have time to say, I'd like to say, but here's the point at the end. The point, as we look back on Job as Christians, it reminds us that ultimately God will make things right. Oh, that, there's coming a day. There's coming a better day. So we mourn and we weep, but we don't do it 
without hope. Let's pray. Lord, our hope is not in this world. And so, Lord, we long for that world to come, for you to redeem this world. We're longing for Christ to come. And Lord, I know that there's some of us in here who who just need to secure our hope in you. We need to point ourselves and we need to point our families to the cross and to you, a God who we can trust. And some of the folks in here, Lord, I, I, I trust, don't have a clue what that means and looks like, but they want it. They want it. Lord, I pray this morning for them that they would get it, that they would find you. I pray that they might do so even this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.